Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. So, here we go. Um, we're going to do something. Uh, let me say it this way. We're, Sundays, um, especially, uh, at least I'll speak for myself, I, I, I believe that um, the rest of the pastoral team would agree, but there's usually like a prophetic edge to our, our teachings on Sunday in the sense that what I mean by that is that although we're, we're teaching deeply from the Word of God, we're really trying to be sensitive to what we feel like God's saying in the moment. Where is He taking us? Where are we? What is He taking us out of? Whatever it may be. Um, and honestly, that's where I, I, I just feel like God has at least wired me to teach. But there is another way to go about our gatherings like this on a Sunday, and that's to, to just begin to work through... Um, certain books of the Bible and just begin to teach through that. And, uh, and I, we really feel led for the last few months, maybe even longer, <laughs> it just felt like kind of got put off that we wanted to kind of change it up um, for the f- next few weeks, probably, probably months. And we wanted to come around the book of Ephesians as a community on Sundays. And, uh, and I think it's going to be a really amazing, amazing journey. Um, we're still going to be very sensitive to the leading of the Spirit as we do that. And what I mean by that is we'll come out of this teaching series, if you will, as we feel God highlighting specific things. Uh, for example, we're definitely going to come out of it around the, the, the Christmas uh, season as we just think about the incarnation of Christ and all that comes with that. So we'll come out in, in that sense, but we'll also be sensitive to the spirit in that as we're teaching through, um, we, wanna, we don't just want to do this like a commentary. <laughs> if you've ever been with us, you know, a midweek Bible study, it can have a little more of that feel. That's the purpose of it. We're just... We're hitting every little nuance and going through words. Um, and there'll be some of that that comes up. Even today, fair warning, there's kind of, as we're going through an introduction, some of that comes out. But the heart is that as we're reading passages, we're not just spewing out every single thing that could be spewed out, but we're still praying and saying, God, what within this text right here do you have for us as a body? So this is an eternal stream that you can jump in and know this is always true. And, and so we're jumping into it. And that means that we may read through things that we... They may say, wow, what about that? And we don't actually touch it necessarily. Or it means we can stay on a text for several weeks and keep hitting something different. Um, one of the advantages when you do this is it, it causes us to embrace the full counsel of God's word. Because um, if not careful, all of us have a tendency to stay on themes or places that we're most comfortable or that we most enjoy. And so what's nice is that this caused us to really set our hearts beho- before all of God's counsel, which is so, so important. And... If you're like me, if the thought of being in a, in a book for an extended period of time, you're like, man, that's going to that's gonna get old after a while. I promise you, actually, I find there's a great freshness on it because you will hit so many topics and, and things that maybe you normally wouldn't go through. So in this book, you'll see we'll talk about you know, spiritual warfare, the, the authority of Christ, the authority of the church, the armor of God. There's, then you've got parenting. <laughs> you've got marriage. You've got how to deal with anger and process that. You've got the five-fold ministry of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. How does that function? I mean, there is a wide range of things that will come forth over the weeks or however long God has us in it. So I'm excited for that. Um, I was going to do uh, put up an extensive background for you and give it out. I'm sorry, I, I didn't do it. But I will say... It's, you can easily go on, like, ESV.com has a great um, background. You can go to, there's so many resources, and I would encourage you to do it. Even the most extensive ones maybe takes 30 minutes to go through, and it goes through themes and whatnot. And since we're as a community going to be diving into this, it would really benefit you to understand in depth what are the, what's happening behind the scenes. We'll, 
we'll hit that a little bit today, and over the weeks, things will come out that I'll share context, but that would, I really encourage you to do that. The ESV is really good. Gospel Coalition is another website that provides really clear um, summaries of books. You can go in there as well. So, you excited to jump into Ephesians? <laughs> it's going uh, to be awesome. So, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And then again, it's, uh, I'm used to this in midweek. This is a little different. But just bear with us. A- as after this introductory um, teaching, we'll really be able to kind of take off and, and hit a lot of beautiful things. Awesome. We got scriptures up here. So again, I admit that there's, we're going to extend beyond the normal amount of information I'd want to give. may feel like you're drinking from a fire hose for a second. <laughs> Uh, because I just, I, I'm not going to go in depth, but I want us to have some understanding of what's happening here, and then we're going we're gonna to really focus on verses 3 to 14 today, and I pray that we're going to be super blessed. So I'll start by saying this, that pound for pound, Ephesians may be the most influential document ever written. And, you know, I think about Romans that really stands apart as just this, this heavyweight of, of a letter, but, Roman, but Ephesians, given that it's significantly smaller, if you think about the size of it, it is so weighty, so powerful. Now, Ephesians, Ephesians is a prison epistle. What that means is that Paul actually penned this while he was in prison, while he was on house arrest in Rome. Um, he penned a few other letters there as well. So he had a little more freedom than just being shackled up in, in, a, in a jail cell. So he was able to write letters. How did he get this letter to the church of Ephesus? Well, you'll find at the end of this letter, he had a servant that he sent by the name of Tychicus, who also delivered probably Colossians and Philemon as well. So he pens this, and then he'll give it to this man who will bring it to the churches, okay? This letter is considered a circular letter, which means it's actually not addressed to a specific individual like Timothy, when Paul does that, nor is it addressed probably to a specific church like the Corinthians, but it is addressed to a region of Ephesus, which is Asia Minor today. It's modern Turkey. And what probably happened is this was a general epistle that got passed around from house church to house church, and they would read this letter, okay? Um, You can go to Acts 19 and find a lot of Paul's background in Ephesus. I mean, they experienced revival there. (laughs) This is where um, crazy kingdom breakthrough took place, and it would really help you understand just some of the background. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else in his missionary journey. He spent three years. Um... Yeah, it was a really significant, significant place. Ephesus, the city itself, this will come up more and more. If you've ever read it, you know there's a lot on spiritual warfare and powers, and that's because this is a city that was steeped in the occult and witchcraft, and that's really, I think, relevant for us today where New Age is on the rise. Um, This letter has a lot to say about the victory of the church over spiritual powers, and uh, and so you're going to see Paul writes a lot about people coming out of strongholds of this sort, Um, Part of why there was such a spiritual warfare in this city of Ephesus is because they had what is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was a temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis, or in the Roman language, it was Diana. And basically, she was the goddess of fertility. And so you would have temple prostitutes here. And there was just so much darkness and, and like sexual perversion going on here. And right smack in the middle of that, people are just getting set on fire for Jesus and living for the Lord, and, uh, and so it's really, it's just awesome. All right, so the purpose of this letter, it's different. Uh, it's not like Colossians or Galatians where you see a specific heresy being addressed, nor is it like the Corinthian letter where you see issues, specific issues. This is really, I think, 
a letter where you see the pastoral heart of Paul for a group of young believers who have been brought out of so much stuff, and he's desiring for them to know their identity and to walk in light of that, to walk in the victory that they have and to be the agents of transformation that God has called them to be, all right? Um, Lastly, one way to help you understand, like, the overview of this book, you could almost cut this book in half. The first three chapters deal with deep theological truths, so bear with me over the next few weeks and those who speak. You're going to see things like, again, the, our identity, the victory of Christ, all of these things. But the back half of this book, the last three chapters, is about practically how do we live out now in light of, in light of our identity and victory. All right? That's actually really important. That's, that's a message in itself because Paul doesn't go say start acting this way. He first establishes who they are. And then he says in light of who you are, now go live this way. In other words, you'll see him say you're children of light, so walk in the light. He does not say try to become light. He says this is who you've been made, therefore live in light of that. The whole book is actually structured like this. So we're going to hit some deep things in these opening weeks. Have I lost you yet? <laughs> you with me? I feel like we need <laughs> it's like a classroom right now. All right, here we go. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. All right? He is a representative of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is important because Paul speaks on behalf of Jesus Christ. We are not about to read the mere teachings of a gifted man, nor are we going to read his just thoughts on what is happening in Ephesus. But he is literally saying, I am a human instrument, but I have been sent by Jesus himself, and I speak on behalf of Christ under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when we come to set our hearts before this word, we set our hearts before Jesus Christ himself. And then he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, which means Paul did not step into this, nor did any of us step into the callings God has by our own uh, desire necessarily, by, by, our, by human achievement. Paul says this is grace. Paul's life was swallowed by grace, and as a result, he was radically changed and set on a new course to now bless and lead people who he once persecuted. Paul doesn't even emphasize his own response of obedience. The whole thing is on God's divine initiative and how God has intersected his life, and that's the same story for all of us. Amen? So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I literally almost stopped and just preached the whole message right here on this. For I want you to listen because this is true for us. He says to the saints, one, they're holy ones set apart. That's not for a, a, a select few, but all of them in Christ. But he says they are in Ephesus and they are also in Christ Jesus. There is a dual citizenship that is true about every believer who is born again of the Holy Spirit. You are in a tent in Mastic Beach, but you are simultaneously in Christ. (laughs) And your geographical position may change quite regularly. You may tomorrow be in the store, in a car, whatever it may be, but your spiritual location never changes. In fact, your geographical, physical location never affects your spiritual location. No matter how much life seems to be shaking around you, you remain in Christ. But the opposite is true. Your spiritual location is meant to greatly affect your physical. We are carriers and representatives of the kingdom of heaven. And we are meant to draw from this life in Christ that everywhere we go, we are meant to have impact. We're meant to make a difference. We're meant to have influence. 
We're meant to walk in the places and literally atmospheres change because we are representatives of heaven on earth. You're not just in Christ when you're in a gathering like this. You're not just in it in a Bible study. You're in it when you're driving the car. You're in it when you're with your kids. You are in Christ at all times. When we go door to door, knocking on house to house, we are maybe in a Mastic Beach, but we are in Christ. And if we remind ourselves of this, we know that at our disposal is the resources of heaven. At our disposal is the authority of heaven to walk in. And this will actually be a major theme. Paul wants the eyes of the heart to be open to who they are. So you are in Ephesus or in Mastic Beach, you're in Christ Jesus. And then I kid you not, this may be one of my favorite statements Paul makes often in his letters in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, a few years ago when I would read this and it says grace to you, Paul will do this in almost, I think it's every letter, he says grace to you. I, I assume this was just a standard way of saying hello at these times. I feel like I would assume that Paul's just saying like greetings, hello there, like grace to you. But actually this is deeply revelatory of Paul's theology of of the power of God and how it's connected to the word of God. And what Paul is actually saying is Paul sees God's grace is the palpable presence of the Lord himself. It's the spirit of God. And Paul says, as you open this letter, grace to you. What he's saying is, as you read this letter, I pray that the power of God is both imparted and deposited into your spirit. Paul actually sees the living word of God as a channel for the grace of God to flow. Guys, I don't know about you, but sometimes it, it, can feel, it can feel like a grind sometimes to be in the word. If we grasp this, I have to remind myself of this, that when you open this word, literally the presence and power of God is resting on it. That when you set your heart and mind on it, Paul would say to us today, grace is released to your heart, to your mind. The very grace that trains you to say no to ungodliness, to live self -right, uh, uh, upright lives of self-control, that grace is here. The grace of the Spirit of God that deposits gifts and the strength that you need to live in victory is found as you sit your heart on this word. Grace, do you, do you know, in, I, I think of Genesis 1. When the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the Spirit did not move until the voice of God, till the Word of God was spoken. I want you to see that when you set your heart on the Word, imagine the Spirit of God hovering over this Word. And when you begin to read this Word, the Spirit moves. He begins to act and do the very things that you are reading, to change you and transform you. And then... If you were to say, yeah, but that sounds good, but what happens as you come to the end of this letter? This rich, copious, abundant flow of grace, Paul, what will happen to it? Is it done? Do you know how Paul closes all of his letters? Grace be with you. <laughs> the very grace that came to you, as you now move from the public reading of the scriptures, he says, grace be with you. And I believe what Paul is speaking about is not only is the grace deposited, it's going to stay, but as you reflect and meditate and put into practice the very things that you have learned, you will find a strength and a courage with you at all times. So we say this morning, grace to you, <laughs> not just to read dead letter. This, this will change us. Our minds will be renewed. Our hearts, our affections are changed as we sit before God's very voice that he spoke. Grace to you. And then as you leave, grace be with you. Grace be with you as you go and tend to sick children tonight. Grace be with you as you're dealing with an unbelieving, unaffectionate spouse. 
Grace be with you tomorrow when you're in the workplace and you're dealing with worldly coworkers sitting around at lunch and discussions arise that you, you know you cannot partake in. And in love and truth, you're able to stand your ground and share Christ with them. Grace be with you, Paul would say. Grace to you this morning and then grace with you as you go, knowing that at all times you can draw from this. My goodness, hallelujah. This is, this is the intro of his letter. Isn't God's word so good? And so grace to you, and as we leave, I'll say grace with you. Okay, now we come into the heart of this in verses 3 to 14. Everyone there? All right. This is sacred ground. <laughs> it really is. It gets me so excited. This is like holy ground, these verses right here. It's, it's an introduction, but it's so much more. And um, I would say this text is, it's so dense, it's so rich, it's so deep, it merits hours of meditation. I would encourage you to, to come and linger all week on this and let it, let it just go deeper into your spirit. Um, before we look at this, I, here's a really interesting fact that I didn't know until we did a Bible study in this a, f- a year or two years ago. Verses 3 to 14, in the original language, which is Greek, it's actually one sentence. It's 202 words. Now, in the English, we've put periods, commas, punctuation marks to help with the translation. But in the original language, it's one long sentence, 202 words. You say, outside of that being a random cool fact, what's, is there any significance? I actually think there is. Probably many things, but here's one reason why. And you maybe even see it as I'm speaking today. Why do we at times not stop and pause and take a moment to breathe as we're talking Usually it's because we are so excited and passionate about what we're speaking on. And I want you to feel the passion of Paul as we read this. Paul, when these guys write these words under the unction of the Holy Spirit, they are not writing as cold, calloused, armchair theologians. As they're writing... The Spirit of God is showing them things. They literally, we've gone through this. They will at times stop. Paul in Romans 11 has to stop and say, oh, the goodness of God, his indescribable mercies. We don't know what happens, but I just imagine there's a pause. The pen goes down, and he's just praising God. These men are deeply affected by that which they are writing. They're not writing like, blessed be the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They're writing this and being moved and touched, and we need to feel that. That Paul, it's almost like Paul says, I can't afford to take a break. (laughs) I can't afford to breathe. One glory after another tumbles and flows out of his mouth. This, This is a continuous, like, cascade of indescribable majesty of Christ, of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. So here's what Paul will do. Ultimately, Paul, and what we're going to look at this morning, we're covering a lot of ground, is Paul can't contain himself because he's describing the blessings of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I, I, in one sense, this is a banner over our teaching this morning that th- I think this is important because we are blessed, but how often is that concept of blessing very vague? It's almost like, it's just like this nebulous thought, like, I'm blessed. We, we go around, how you doing? I'm, I'm blessed and highly favored. <laughs> and you are. But oftentimes, there's no, there's no substance to what we're saying. Do, do we know how we've been blessed? It's not this vague, ethereal concept. It's real. It's concrete. And this just barely touches the surface. But the reality is there are real blessings over your life. And Paul, he's going to break it down. 
by actually looking at the Father, then he's going to look at the Son, then he's going to look at the Holy Spirit. It's so beautifully written. And he's going to say, you're richly blessed in the Father who has elected you, chosen you before the foundations of the world. Then you're richly blessed in the Son who has redeemed you, and then you're richly blessed in the Spirit who has sealed you. It's as if to say the gospel is this. The gospel is God-initiated. It was in his heart before he ever spoke this world into existence. It's Christ-accomplished, and it's Spirit-experienced. <laughs> and all of this fuels praise in the heart of Paul. God devised a plan. Jesus executes the plan. Holy Spirit applies the plan to our life. And Paul says in all of this, we are greatly blessed. So the banner over today is the blessed life, but... There's a sub-point that's really important to make as well. I told you, a lot of information coming at you. After, after each individual person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you're going to see the same phrase every single time. He will say, praise to, the, praise to his glory. So as he speaks on the blessings of God, it ends each time it ends with praise to God, essentially. Worship God. I think this is so important, guys, because... All study of God is unto the worship of God. Just bear with me for a moment. This is really important. The, here's the technical term. Study of God is theology. Praise of God is doxology. You could say all theology is unto doxology. All study is unto praise. If it doesn't lead there, something went wrong. And why I think this is so important is because we're living in a time where I find that there's an unbiblical tension between word and worship. And here's the two opposite ends of the spectrum. On one side, we have a group that says, I'm not here for the worship, I'm just here for the word. <laughs> and so what, what, what even happens is some disengage during worship, they're distracted because they say, I'm just waiting for the word. Or they don't even show up to worship saying, I'm just coming for the word. Here's the problem with that. Paul says, all study of the word is meant to lead into the worship of God. So if we, if we claim to love his word, if we claim to be meditating on his greatness, but it's not fueling a heart where Christ is becoming the supreme treasure and delight, something is not right of our study. At the same time, though, we have to be careful to go to the other side, which is deep things of God get brought up, and we may respond by saying, that's not for me, I'm just a worshiper. <laughs> that's equally dangerous because your worship, to the depth that you know him, is how you can actually worship him rightly. Proverbs 19.2 says, zeal without knowledge is dangerous. So it's one thing to have passion, but if our passion is not rooted in the knowledge of God, it can lead to a lot of disappointment. It leads to a lot of highs and extreme lows. And I just want to help you. Like if, if you're saying, man, we're a worshiping community. We love worship. We take the mandate as priests to stand before God and speak back what Holy Spirit speaks to us. We take that serious. We believe in the power of worship. We believe God's kingdom comes riding in on worship. And if you're like, man, well, I want to grow in that, I can tell you this. Learning the songs we sing is a great practical tool, but that's not how you grow in worship in its fullest extent. Just trying to break through some uncomfortable barriers will not help you grow in worship. It, it's helpful to take leaps of faith, but if you want to grow in worship, Get your heart so set on the beauty of God and his glory that the only thing that can naturally come from that is praise. Amen? Okay. So now we're going into this text. Here we go. Verse 3 will serve as kind of like the overview, and then we'll see, starting in verse 4, it goes Father for a few verses, then Son, then Holy Spirit. All right, verse 3. 
Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. (laughs) This should make us happy to hear this. This is amazing. Guys, the blessing of God, uh, it is so significant. Jacob said, I won't let go of the angel of the Lord until I'm blessed. The Israelites understood, if we don't have God's blessing, you can do nothing. That's why Adam and Eve had to be blessed in order for them to be fruitful and multiply. So sometimes it's just saying, like, hey, it's, it's kind of a false humility. Like, I don't want the blessing of God. Like, I'll just keep going. No, we can't do anything. We need God to bless this ministry. We need it in our life. And here's what this is saying. It says, who, he who is in Christ uh, has been blessed. It's past tense. You are blessed in Christ. How are you blessed? You have to be in Christ. It's, you're not, you're ble- the blessed life does not come from being just in home church or being in a godly family. It's through a life that has come into union with Christ. You have submitted your heart and you are his follower. When you are in Christ, his blessing comes upon you. There's no greater thing that you can have. Why didn't Jesus just be born and go right to the cross? Because his life really mattered. Because while he was living, he lived in perfect obedience, securing Deuteronomy 28 covenantal blessing for me and you. That says, if you want the blessing of covenant, you must obey perfectly. If you don't, here's the curses. Well, here's the problem. None of us can perfectly obey as much as we're desiring to grow in the Lord. But there's one who came who is perfect, who obeys it perfectly. And in that, he secures covenantal blessing for everyone that is in him. Why do we have confidence to pray for healing and life? Read Deuteronomy 28. That's all the blessings of one who obeys perfectly. So if you're in Christ, you have the blessing of God over your life. And you do not just have some blessings. You have every blessing. Contrary to what I want to think at times when I go through something hard, God is not stingy. God is not holding out. The enemy is a liar. God is really good. And everything you need ultimately is found in him. There are certainly family. All these things are are treasures God has given us. But you have everything you need in God himself. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And then that's the other word. It says that these are spiritual blessings. I think this can cause some confusion. But my my understanding of this in in years of study in this is that spiritual can make us think uh, Paul is denouncing like physical or material or earthly blessings. I don't even think that's on Paul's radar. The translation of this literally means blessings that come from the Spirit. He's not not talking about immaterial versus material. All he's saying is you have been blessed with every blessing that comes from the Spirit. Because of the indwelling Holy Holy Spirit in you, there's blessings that are now touching your life. He's going to say adoption, redemption, inheritance, wisdom, eternal life. Grace, like these are the blessings that are pertain. Their source is the Holy Spirit that is now living inside of you. That's what it means to be spiritual, spiritual blessings. And then he says a statement that's so amazing. He says that they are, we've been blessed in the heavenly places. Now, again, I think this could be some confusion. This isn't emphasizing a physical place, um, nor is it emphasizing like a place way out there that when you die, you'll have access to these blessings. Heavenly place, it's really refer- referencing the unseen realm, if you will. It's, it's God's realm and God's world where God rules. But the point is that you don't have to wait to die to have access to these blessings. All Paul is trying to say here is that you've been blessed in the unseen realm. You may not see it with your natural eye, but this is who you are. 
Listen, very, very carefully. This is why the next, cha- the next section of this, uh, of this chapter, verses 15 to 23, it's all centered on a prayer. And the heart of the prayer is Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you would know the inheritance that you, have, that you are to him, the hope of glory, the victory of Christ. This is what he's saying. He's saying in the unseen realm, you're his. You're so richly blessed. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're forgiven. You're this. And Paul is saying, I pray to those at Ephesus that you would not walk around with your head down saying, man, uh, like, how are you doing? I'm just getting by. No, he's saying, no, let, let the eyes of your heart open wide that you would see and know who you are in the unseen realm. Hallelujah. <laughs> and you want to know something crazy? I'm going to go into this now. Break, break. Then we'll praise break. We're about to go. Listen. This is, this is really, man, if this goes overhead, we're going to keep fleshing this out in weeks to come. But heavenly place is a unique phrase you'll find only in this letter. Now, here's a study tool. Whenever you read a letter where you find a word that's unique to that letter, you have to stop and say, what was going on in the life of the recipients of that letter that Paul would use this over and over? It's, it's connected to the context. So here's the idea of heavenly places here. Um, you'll notice it's all throughout the scripture. And remember, this is a deeply spiritual place, although granted dark, okay, in Asia Minor. And they had believed that spiritual powers and things that they were once enslaved to, where they lived was in the heavenly place, in the unseen realm. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, you fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and unseen things in the heavenly places. Because this was the idea. It's like the unseen realm. When sin entered in, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's unseen, but there's a power being exerted over people's lives. It's this, it's this heavenly place. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that we, before Christ, were all walking according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the heavenly place. The idea is this, is that Paul is speaking to people who were once enslaved to powers that, ha- that inhabited the heavenly place. Now he's saying God has blessed you right in that place. The very place that powers once used to wreak havoc on your life, we can't see it, but in, the, in their realm, they see the blessing of God over your life. I just imagine it's like, man, Andrew, we, we tormented. He was in addiction. And now before them, they see sonship. <laughs> they see redemption. This is why uh, Ephesians 3 says that we're the manifold wisdom of God declaring to the principalities in, and, and spirits in the heavenly places. Your life is declaring a message right now. You can't see it, but the powers that once wreaked havoc are looking, saying, what? What is God doing? And I almost feel like if we only knew that, it's like if they only knew who God has made them. That's why the, listen, the enemy is cast down defeated. His only, the only thing he can do is deceive. His only hope is that you will actually not step into and understand what the Lord has done. But I want you to know that God's blessing in your life is not reserved for just the good times. He blesses you right in the midst of your enemy's territory. In fact, it says in, oh my goodness, chapter 1, later on, it says that Christ has been seated and raised above in the heavenly places. You know where Jesus sits? He sits right where all the enemies are. sits right down and says, I rule right here. And he says, you sit with me. We have such authority in Christ. Think about that. This is where the powers were exerting their force. And the letter says that you're sitting right next to Christ in victory. My goodness. All right. Let's go to chapter. Oh, my goodness. Let's go to verse 4. Here's the Father. 
He says this, verse 4. Here, now we're going to the Father. He says, even as he chose us in him, so even as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Sorry, I don't know if I'm going too fast. I'm on verse 5 already. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Here it is, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. <laughs> it's like Paul just has to stop and say, just praise him for a moment. So he says the Father has done something. The Father has, has chosen us. He's elected us. When? Before the foundation of the world. Just think about this for a moment. This plan of salvation, which is not, it's, it's, it's God-initiated. When the great universe, when the cosmos still only lay in the mind of God, before the mountains were brought forth, before there were animals, before there were flowers, before there were waters, before the sun ever illuminated the sky, when there was still holy silence and solitude in the Godhead, before anything came into existence, God was literally burning with love for his people. His, his bowels were moved with compassion and love for us. Before anything was here, God had already chosen us. And what is the purpose of our selection? What's the purpose of this choosing before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him? Now, there is a present and future state of this. In one sense, it's very true that God has called the people before the foundation of the world that we would be in this life living in response and obedience to God, living a life of purity and living a life of set apart. That's true. The scriptures speak to that. But there's also a future aspect of what he's saying here, like a once and for all presentation before God. You guys follow me? And actually, the emphasis in Ephesians is more on that, I think. Why? Because in chapter 5, it says of the church, it, the, the, the church is like a bride. And it says Christ is washing us by his word in order that he would present us before God as holy, blameless, without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. What he's speaking about, that's, that's a presentation of at the second coming of Christ. So if you think about this, Paul is literally running the full gamut of, like, existence. He says, before the foundation of the world, God set his heart on you and chose you. And in the end, when his son returns, he's going to present you as holy and blameless before him. And what motivated him to do this? His good pleasure. His love. <laughs> Can you, well, God, why did you do this? We rebelled. We turned. What? I enjoy it. I, I wasn't, it, well, I didn't do it begrudgingly. I didn't do it reluctantly. I didn't do it unwillingly. I wasn't duped. I wasn't manipulated. I didn't have a limited group to pick from. And so I said, well, they'll do. <laughs> God says in his good pleasure, in his love, he selected us. He chose us. Do you know that, do you know that God has an emotional life? It's true. There are things that God loves and delights in, and there are things that he despises. And all I know is that when I read this, what Paul is telling us is that God finds it uniquely joyful, <laughs> pleasant, exciting, and satisfying to his heart to come and overwhelm a life that is rebellious, living far from him, overwhelm with grace, bring him into himself so that him or her could have eternal fellowship as a son and daughter. God says, I like this. <laughs> I enjoy this. This brings me delight to do this. And it's all to the praise of his glory. We praise him for this. Verse 7, he goes to the Son. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Meaning you were rescued from slavery. A payment was paid by blood. Redemption is not what you could call divine fiat, which means God just willed it. He just commanded. Redemption, let it be. 
No, redemption comes through substitutionary atonement. God just didn't just will it. He willed it, but he had to do something, which is he laid down his son. His son took on all that we deserved. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. If you say, God, you have, you're rich in grace, where, where have you seen it? It says in his blood. That's what it's saying. His blood is the ultimate manifestation of his incalculable abundance of grace in your life. And then verse 8, he says, which he lavished upon us this grace. Look what his grace did. It not only forgives us, but here's what also grace is doing in your life right now. In all wisdom and insight, this is what grace is doing. It's giving wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Guys, he is literally saying grace has exploded over your life in Christ. Not only has he forgiven you, but now he's given you wisdom and insight to begin to perceive what God is doing in this grand story of redemption. That the mystery of his will, which means not that it's hard to understand, but mystery means something that was once concealed has now been unveiled. But we need grace to understand it. This isn't like the political world where we say the public has a right to know. No one had a right to know what God was up to. And God, in grace, said, hey, I'm not only going to forgive you, but I'm going to dispense my spirit upon you that you would begin to have wisdom and insight so that you can begin to reorient your life to live in light of what I am doing on the earth. And what is he ultimately doing? He is uniting, reconciling all things in his son, both in heaven and on earth. What that means, guys, is right now, because of Jesus, everything is on a trajectory of coming back under the lordship of Christ. Since sin, there's been discord, disharmony, chaos, rebellion, brokenness, everything that came from sin. What this is saying is now in Christ, everything that's out of order, Every act of rebellion, it's going to one day be brought fully under the submission of the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's going to remove, he's going to remove every, he's going to remove all hostility on the earth. Peace and harmony will be restored like the garden. You say, but what about those who've rejected him? Or what about fallen, fallen angels? Will they be saved? That's not what it's saying. But everything will submit to his lordship. See, what this means is actually one of two things will happen for him to bring peace and harmony. Either you'll receive it through his forgiving, redemptive blood and by his grace, or at the end of all things, he will get it through sheer conquest as the right king. This is the idea that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Some will knee because they've been melted by the goodness of God and they've been washed by his blood. The rest will kneel as well, but they will kneel because at that moment they will see he is king. And the king will have everyone come under his lordship. This is good news, but we pray that all would come under Jesus. All right, and then he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There's the second praise. We worship him for all that he's done in the Son. And then finally, we finish off here with the Holy Spirit. All of it's building here. The new covenant is life in the spirit now, guys. It says, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. There it is again, to the praise of his glory. When you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, I think there's three, 
There's three ideas of sealing in this culture that I think it's drawing on. Number one, sealing marks ownership. They would brand cattles. Unfortunately, they, they were still, uh, uh, slaves were a massive part of the culture. They'd brand slaves. But the idea is that when you own something, you would brand it. You would seal it. What this is saying is God has sealed you, marking you as his own. He says, that, that, that man, that woman, she's mine. Now, why does God do that? Because he's afraid of forgetting you? No, he does it for our benefit. So that when you would go through life and at times would say, God, am I still yours? The spirit of God that's been sealed on you would begin to cry out and testify and say, Abba, and bear witness to your own spirit that you are his. He does it for our benefit. <laughs> the second thing of, of sealing, it authenticates and certifies something's genuine. You put it on a document. Whenever you say, God, am I legit? <laughs> am I your child? The spirit authenticates and says this is the one mark in the book of Acts that, that the, the, the council at Jerusalem said, how do we know the Gentiles are really in this thing? And it's not just Jews. They said they received the Holy Spirit. Guys, when, when in doubt, it's the spirit that becomes the ultimate mark to say this, this one is real and this one belongs to God. So you never have to doubt that. I believe God wants his children to honestly live in security in him. I don't believe he wants you sitting at the family table like the slaves do, and they were never sure if that would be their last meal at the table. Will I be kicked out? He wants you to sit as a son. That's why you've not been given the spirit of fear and the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of a son, that you know that when you sit at the father's table, you belong there, and the spirit bears witness to that. And then lastly, you seal something, as we do in our day, to preserve the goods that are inside of it, especially when it's in transit. And so this is amazing because Ephesians 4.30 says that we were sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. In other words, God has precious cargo that he's trying to get somewhere, and he's not going to let it get spoiled. So he has sealed you, providing everything you need. The Spirit is literally, it gives you the gifts and everything is meant to build up, bring you into full maturity, that when you feel weak and discouraged, the Spirit is strengthening you, that you would continue on and make it to the very destination that God has with him forever. And all of this, we conclude is that it is just a guarantee of the glorious inheritance that is coming. In one sense, what that means is you've received a down payment. And it's a guarantee that there's more to come. So the, the, the picture I have is imagine you go out to a meal. You ever eat the, eat the meal, and then when you're done, it says it's cash only. And you don't have cash. So what do you have to do? You normally have to leave your license there until you go get cash on an ATM and come back. Your license is a guarantee that you'll come back and finish business. God gave you his spirit as a guarantee saying, I'm not going to leave you here. I'm going to come back and finish what I started. He who started a good work in you is faithful to bring it to the end. Our response and the way we live is so, it matters so much. But can I tell you, can I tell you a secret? <laughs> do, do, you know, do you know where my confidence comes from in the Lord? Not from my ability to hold on to God, but from his ability to hold on to me. <laughs> My confidence today is not that I'm so strong to hold on to him, but that the Spirit of God has sealed me and is applying everything that God has done in my life. My confidence today is that there's one right now at the right hand of the Father interceding, praying for me, that when I want to give up, that when I want to quit, there's one who's covering me in his prayers. We were listening to a song this morning, Oh Simon, Oh Simon, Satan has come to sift you like wheat. What's your one source of encouragement, Simon? I prayed for you. I prayed for you. Jesus says, you want to know how you're going to make it through? You're covered in my prayers right now. 
You want to know how we're going to be saved to the uttermost, Hebrews 7.25? Because there's one who prays for us. It's what he, he lives to make intercession. And right now he's covering us in his prayers. And so he's given us his spirit. It's not just a promise of what is to come. It's also a taste. The future has broken into our now. <laughs> and we're tasting it and experiencing it all. And all of this is to the praise of his glory. Just, just want to burst in worship after this, no? <laughs> Listen, the Father, he selected you. He, he initiated it. The Son has executed the plan. The Spirit has sealed you and he's applying it. And this just gets us into the heart of what Paul is going to unpack. So I, we have to take it. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.